like I was saying right before, I, I want to go over with you about love. I want to work on eros, agape, and philia, um, the three famous Greek words uh, for love. Eros, where we get the word erotic from. Uh, agape would be charity. And philia would be a love, uh, more of the sort of friendship love. Philia, P-H-I-I-L-I-A. Friendship love. And um, it won't go in that order, actually. It goes eros, uh, philia, agape. Agape is the term that's most used in the Bible for love. Philia will turn to Aristotle, and he'll be the main source text for it. Usually that's what we use. Philia also appears in the Bible. For example, when Jesus says um, to Peter, do you love me after the resurrection? He says it three times. He'll say, do you agape me? And Peter will respond, yes, Lord, I philia you. I philia you. Um, so it does appear in the Bible. Uh, it's important also. And it would be an interesting study in itself. And Eros is best known in Plato, in the philosopher named Plato. And Eros, I already said, is where erotic comes from. But erotic, obviously, it doesn't mean the same thing in, in Greek. Now erotic has taken on uh, sexual thought. And Eros, in the beginning, is this um, desire, the love that's ecstatic, where I come out of myself towards the other. So Plato is going to talk about it as the love of contemplation. So it's totally different, and yet similar. Because it's this desire that comes out of a, uh, that takes us out of ourselves. And I want to start with Plato. And Plato is excellent. He is a wonderful, wonderful thinker. I um, love Plato. I, I worked on Plato. Um, I don't know if I could say I worked on Plato's works the most in my life. Um, or at least up there. Up there. I mean, I, I've read his works uh, probably a couple times and taught him quite a bit. Uh, taught him. His most famous work, uh, it depends on your opinion, but usually it would be The Republic. The Republic. Very famous work. Um, and where he's going to talk about what is the ideal city, what is the ideal um, government. And he's going to say that it should be run by a contemplative, somebody who is contemplating the eternal truths and able to implement them in society. And he had a major effect. He also is going to be the teacher of Aristotle. And Aristotle will be the one that will most influence St. Thomas Aquinas. Plato influenced the first thousand years of Christian thought. Augustine, St. Augustine being a, a great example of that. And Aristotle will influence the next thousand years the, after Thomas Aquinas. So both are essential thinkers to understand Christian thought in general. So we're not just talking about random texts. If we're speaking about love and the thought of Plato, there's a famous work by Plato called the Symposium or the Banquet. It depends on the translation. Usually in English, it's Symposium. And in other languages, most of the time, it's Banquet. And it's a great work. It's for Plato, it is relatively easy to read. Um, it's very uh, a friendly book. It's not the most difficult of his works by far. It's not. Um, and 
in this work, it's all about love. What is the nature of love? In The Republic, the book I just mentioned, he's going to ask, what is justice? Hence the work of politics. In almost each of uh, Plato's works, he's going to explore a subject. He doesn't really always conclude what it is. He might end up in the end saying, I don't know what justice is. And that's the end of the book. (laughs) But it was the journey that led us through all these points and discovering, well, it's part this and it's not that, that makes it really interesting. Like he has another work on piety. What is piety? And all kinds of works, actually, on all kinds of different subjects. This one being on love, it's one of the more famous, right? Because love is not minor. It's not a minor issue. It is a major issue. And it starts out by, well, like all of his works, he starts out by kind of setting a scenario. It's always in a dialogue that this is happening. A dialogue between friends, a dialogue between people that are out in the marketplace, or this time it's a dialogue between uh, men at a banquet. And in those times, they enjoyed conversation, philosophical conversation. And Plato is always going to write using a a character in his, in his dialogues whose name is Socrates. Socrates was a real man. He wasn't just a fictional character. He was Plato's original teacher. But Socrates didn't um, say everything that Plato put in his mouth. This would be one of those uh, dialogues that we would deem was in large part, fiction, made up. It could have happened, been based in truths, but uh, this would be a middle dialogue, which is where Plato starts to put words in Socrates' mouth. Mouth, not mouth. Socrates doesn't have two mouths. Um, uh, He puts words in Socrates' mouth. And the initial dialogues of Plato, the beginning works of Plato, are going to be really just kind of uh, portraying what Socrates had said in the beginning, his master had said. Socrates would be a martyr of the truth. He'll end up dying, being martyred, for the search for the truth. And he had, because he died for the search for the truth, he died for uh, philosophy, he died for the love of truth, love of wisdom, he'll have a major impact upon history. Perhaps outside of Jesus, um, outside of Jesus and, and the followers of Christ, the most influential thinker on Western thought. Probably it would take second place. We'd have to argue about that. But outside of Christ and his followers, um, he's arguably the most influential thinker in history of Western thought. And so it's not unimportant, let's say, for us to know a little bit about it. Plus, if you take some of his dialogues that are not as complicated, he's kind of fun. He's kind of fun to work with because uh, he presents it in a living way. His dialogues will be between a group of men and, and they'll be arguing between each other and they'll, they'll say, well, no, but maybe like that. And then they'll present a whole story and it'll take you off into this land of what is love. And then they'll say, nah, that's all bunk. And, and then take you off into another way. And you'll be meandering through the forest of what is love. And it's a very nice dialogue. Um, but in the end, it's going to be Socrates, in this dialogue anyways, that is going to tell us the most about what is love. But he'll start out. And in those days, remember that they... It didn't have tables like we do. And so if they have the table in the middle, it'll be a very short table. And they'll be laying on couches. And they'll spend the whole day laying around and eating their food and talking amongst themselves, laying on the couches, etc. And listening to another person, yeah, eating their grapes. And listening to another person, one of the guys, give a presentation on what is love. 
And there are um, five main presentations of what is love before um, Socrates is going to intervene. And it's interesting because it's like five different understandings of what is love. And Socrates is going to come in. And Socrates is perhaps the most, well, definitely the most powerful of them. But if you're working through those, those five, it's, it's good to stop at each one and see what they're saying. And in looking at it, the first ones is going to the first one is going to be Phaedrus. Phaedrus is the name of the guy. The first one, the first guy to speak is Phaedrus. Um, P H E D R U S. And Phaedrus, when he's going at it, he's going to say that love is the most ancient of all the gods. Why? Because he has a great dignity, a great authority in order to direct men. And where does he direct men? This God directs men towards merit and, and goodness. And this, this whole concept about um, love being a god, of course, it's like this sign that love is this thing that is most noble and wise and leads us into that great, great wisdom. And it's interesting already uh, to see that that is one, possession, one view on it. The next one is going to explain it from another point of view. And it's going to almost have a, a completely, completely opposite point of view. But with Phaedrus, when he's beginning, he's going to say this first point, but it seems to lack when we're looking at it because is love always leading us to what is noble? It seems that when I love something, I don't have nobility. I'm looking for it. I'm loving it. I'm lacking that possession. I'm looking for it. So maybe, maybe if it's a God, it's going to say to us, I'm going to guide you towards it. Guide you towards it. But if you're going to say, love is that God that's very high, I don't know. I don't know if, I, if I'm going to agree with that. I think love is also this God that starts low and is longing, is searching for something that's greater. But that's one interpretation of it. The next one is Posineus. And that's spelled P like Paul's P-A-U-S-A-N-I-A-S. And Posineus is going to say, Phaedrus, I'm not quite sure our subject has been well defined. Our charge has been, been simple to speak in praise of love. This would have been fine if love himself were simple. But as a matter of fact, there are two kinds of love. In view of this, it might be better to begin by making clear which kind of love we are to praise. And he moves forward. Let me, let me therefore try to put our discussion back on the right track and explain which kind of love ought to be praised then I shall give him the praise he deserves as the God he is. It is, well known that it is well known that love and Aphrodite are inseparable. If therefore Aphrodite is a single goddess, there could also be a single love. But since there are actually two goddesses of that name, there also are two kinds of love. And that's where it gets interesting. I don't expect you'll, di you'll disagree with me about two goddesses, will you? One is an older deity, the, mother, the motherless daughter of Uranus, the god of heaven. 
She is also, no, she is known as Urania, or heavenly Aphrodite, or Aphrodite. The other goddess is younger, the daughter of Zeus. Her name is Pandemos, or common Aphrodite. It follows, therefore, that there is a common, a common as well as heavenly love. Depending on the goddesses, uh, on which goddess is love's partner. And although, of course, all the gods must be praised, we must still make an effort to keep these two gods apart. And he goes on. And so here, this next guy is going to say, yes, love is very noble. And it brings us into the hands of the gods. But at the same time, love is also very simple. There's a, a, a human love, a low love. And so we can almost distinguish between the two. And moving forward, the next one is going to say um, something still further. He's more of the doctor. Let's see if I can find it in English. What is his name? Is it Raximachus, I think. But in, in French, it's Eraximach. So it must be Eraximachus in English. Ah, uh, there it is. Yes. Eraximachus is a very complicated name. You could just spell it however you want. To. <laughs> and Eraximachus is going to um, put forward the, uh, still yet another, another thought. Eraximachus is going to speak of love in medicine. So the first guy is going to say, love is God, a God that's very noble. The second one is going to say, well, love is a God that's noble, but it's also a God that's simple. A God that's simple and in our everyday. And the next one is going to speak about love and medicine. And how is love and medicine related? It always, love is always double. It's always going for a multiplicity of objects. All beings desire, and if he's healthy, he desires good things. And if he's sick, he desires bad things. And medicine is an art that allows us to work with people so that they desire what is good for them and good for their bodies. All science and all arts consists in discovering love and the harmony of things. And there's something still kind of true in this. This, this brings up a whole other point. So the first one gave us that, that simple explanation, how God, uh, he's a God of nobility. Next one's going to say, well, he's also a simple God that's in our everyday, like a love of chocolate kind of thing. The next one is going to say, well, love is going to be linked to my harmony with things. And as a doctor's point of view, a doctor's going to try to get you to have the correct harmony within you so that you love what is good for you and not love what is bad for you. And that's already yet another step. Because love is going to be touching on my harmony with the things around me. And the doctor is going to try to get you to be harmonious with what is good. Now, do we really think that there's a doctor that's going to do that? No, but there is an analogy today. Uh, psychology will often be working with that. Uh, your love for alcohol is disordered, and we're going to try to reorder you back to loving what is truly good for you. And we're not going to simply say to you um, that uh, you have to stop loving alcohol, 
we're going to say to you, in order to stop loving alcohol, you have to actually have a proper and true love. We're not just going to create a hole, no alcohol in you. We're going to actually say, love your friends, love your neighbors, and ultimately love God. Thinking of like the 12 steps, always starting with the uh, uh, submission to the higher power and doing it in a group and being surrounded by a group of friends. But there's some truth to that. Insanity is often linked with a disordered love. And the work of a psychologist is going to be that work of reordering your love so that it's balanced and healthy. And so love could be seen as kind of this harmony with the things around me. And I am in a bad song (laughs) with a lot of disharmony if I am addicted to alcohol. So there's some truth in that, too. And it's like, again, what I like about his presentation is like each little uh, speech that they're going to give is going to be another little view on love, another little view on love. The next one is Aristophanes. And he is a comedian or a, um, a man of theater. Plato isn't going to like him very much. And um, when he, what is he going to present to us? Love is this uh, myth. It's interesting. I love this myth, actually, that he's going to present. Love is like this myth where we were conceived or we were born originally in this hole, in this sphere. And some unfortunate thing happened to us where we're cleaved in two. And love is this desire to find my other half again. And I'm going around the world looking for that missing part, this missing part of who I am. And it's interesting. And it's somewhat true. It's somewhat true, uh, this one too. Because I am constantly searching for something that I lack when I love. And I'm searching to be united with that thing that I lack. I'll often talk about this when I'm talking about marriage. Is finding your partner. You know, um, now it's kind of ideal, and that's why it's nice to know that he is a man of theater. So he's dramatizing. You're dramatizing it. It's not exactly true. You're not finding your soulmate. Is it really your soulmate, or is it uh, someone that God has put on your path, to which you may be in harmony with, or you may not be in harmony with? Hopefully, you're in harmony with, and we'll call that a soulmate. <laughs> We'll call that a soulmate. Someone who you love with all your heart and who fills a certain hole. We'll come back to that. Because even, even in marriage, when you're looking at that, you desire that he fill that hole completely or she fill that hole completely, and yes, she doesn't. There's always a need for more. And so that's where this analogy kind of breaks down because you don't find um, your other half on this earth. But where it's good is that we are in quest for something that we lack. There is that fundamental quest. And that's why that, that myth that we originally were created as a whole in a sphere and rolling around and uh, all of creation, and we were cut in half, and that was the evil, and now love is that desire to come back like a magnet to my other half, is a nice myth. It breaks down because nothing in this earth can really fulfill that. And, but that's also part of it, right? 
is that we're constantly on the quest for our other half. The last one is Agathon. And he's a spoiled kid. His, um, his love is easy and is burning. This love which um, never grows up. Problem is it remains fragile, weak. His discourse, um, if it has any philosophical value, it searches to seduce by its style. And it shows us this love of a young man who's happy and completely in love. But it leads us right into um, the main character in the whole thing, and that would be Socrates' presentation. which is going to be uh, quite epic, quite, quite epic. But I want to start out with those five. And if you see those five, it's a, love is something that's incredibly noble. It's something that's in, also very poor, very, very poor. Love is also one of the most healing or, if it's disordered, destructive things. It, but it has to do with healing, has to do with healing or destruction. Love is also looking for this um, lack, this thing that I lack. And finally, um, love can be very naive and very immature. And it leads us into Socrates' presentation. And Socrates is going to say, um, well, uh, I don't know what it is, and I don't feel worthy. But he always does that. He always does that. I don't know what it is, and I don't feel worthy. Because remember that, that famous saying in philosophy that everyone who ever takes a philosophy class hears is that all I know is that I know nothing. Which doesn't mean he knows nothing. It means that what he knows is nothing. <laughs> Meaning his, what he knows is like sand. In comparison with all the truth, with true wisdom, it's like nothing. And that's true for us, too. All that we have in our mind is like nothing in comparison with the wisdom of God. And so St. Thomas Aquinas, in all of his greatness, will, at the end of his life, when he sees the vision, a vision of God, he will say, all that I've written after writing the Summa is nothing but straw in comparison with what I've seen in the Lord. He won't say that all I've written is straw. He'll say all I've written is straw in comparison with what I've seen in the Lord. And so coming, he always comes in with that approach. So that's why sometimes he ends up saying, I don't know. <laughs> and with this one, he says, well, luckily, I have spoken with this priestess. Diotima. I've spoken with this priestess, and notice can be from a priestess. So it's a revelation from God. And it's going to be a priestess again, because love for him is going to be like a priest. It's going to be this passageway to the gods. This way of uniting ourselves with the divine. Pope Benedict, when he's writing his encyclical on love, will quote quite a bit this, this book and tell us that we have to come back and rediscover what Eros really is. And he's going to speak volumes about uh, the I thirst at the cross. It speaks volumes about I thirst. But he, Socrates is going to say that it's a priestess. 
And the priestess, it's funny, the, the priestess is the one that's going to tell the story to Socrates. So two things. He needs a divine revelation in order to speak about love. Second thing, he also needs to know that it is this mediator between God and man. This thing that elevates us up to the divine. Eros is always this ecstatic motion. And he has a a myth himself that he's going to talk about. Uh, What is the origin of love? Where does love come from? So he gives a different one, a different origin story. And it has to do with a, a banquet of the gods. Let's see if I can find it. It's interesting because you'll say that love is, is both ugly and beautiful. It's both um, poor and rich. It's ugly and beautiful. because it, 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 Ugly because it brings out what is ugly in man. <laughs> it brings out what is ugliest in us. You know? It, it really does. It's not always beautiful. Um, and yet it is also what is most beautiful. If you look at almost all poems, the ugly poems, they, they're also about love, <laughs> you know? And the ones that are about terrible things, it's often about love. It also is something that brings us outside of ourselves, but also empties us so that we can receive Love is also something that brings us to the transcendent, but it also brings us to the imminent, what is within us. Think about when you love someone. When you love someone, you want to be with them. But when you want to be with them, you also make a hole in your heart so that you can receive them. The more you love them, the more you're able to receive them. So it's this interesting phenomena that we find. The more ecstatic it becomes, the more instatic it becomes. Uh, that's what Plato is going to go into when he's, th- when he's presenting it from the point of view of Socrates. And so they're beginning that dialogue, and, and, and Diotima is going to explain to Socrates what is love, and they're discussing it. Um, and so eventually, um, Socrates is going to ask, well, who is his father, who is his mother? Who is the father and mother of love, of Eros? She says, that's a strange and long story. I'll tell, you, I'll tell it to you all the same. When Aphrodite was born, remember Aphrodite is the god of beauty. And that's important because Eros is always linked somewhat with beauty, the beautiful. Philia is going to be linked with the good. And God is both good and beautiful. Aphrodite was born. The gods held a celebration. Poros, the son of Metis, was among them. Now, Poros, Poros is the name of the god, and the god is the god of resourcefulness. So, the god of plenty. The god of plenty. Poros, or the god of plenty, the son of Metis, was there among them. When they had feasted, Penia came begging. Penia is poverty. Penia came begging, as poverty does when, there are, when there's a party, and stayed by the gates. Now, Poros got drunk on nectar. There was no wine yet, you see. And feeling drowsy, went into the garden of Zeus, where he fell asleep. Then Penea schemed up a plan to relieve her lack of resources. Remember, she is the god of poverty. She would, she would get a child from Poros. So she lay beside him and got pregnant with love. 
That is why love was born to follow Aphrodite and serve her, because he was conceived on the day of her birth. And that's why he is also, uh, by nature, a lover of beauty, because Aphrodite herself is especially beautiful. As the son of Poros and Penea, his lot in life is said to be like theirs. In the first place, he is always poor, and he's far from being delicate and, and beautiful, as ordinary people think he is. Instead, he is tough and shriveled and shoeless and homeless, always lying on the dirt without a bed, sleeping at people's doorsteps and in roadsides under the sky, having his mother's nature, always living with need. It's interesting. When we love, we become needy. I remember when I was little, uh, when I was little and uh, had problem with a girlfriend, uh, I, I was like, ah, oh, and wanting to, no, it's the end of the world, you know, <laughs> as a little like 14-year-old will do, <laughs> you know, drama, drama. And if we're talking about drama, um, love is often dramatic, yes. And so if you want to see on a low level, you see that example. If you want to see on the high level of poverty, you look at St. Francis. On the beautiful side of it, you look at St. Francis, who chooses to be a beggar. And he's searching for lady love. Searching for lady love all of his life. But on his father's side... He is a schemer after the beautiful and the good. He is brave, impetuous, intense, and an awesome hunter, always weaving snares, resourceful in his pursuit of intelligence, a lover of wisdom, philosophia, lover of wisdom. Philo is love, sophia. Through all of his life, a genius with enchantments, potions, and clever pleadings. And it's true. It's what makes us sly. I think of, um, and when I think of this, I also think of that saying uh, that Jesus said, uh, that you have to be as wise as a serpent and as supple as a dove. Supple as a dove or as simple as a lamb, if you want to say it. That you have to be, um, on the one side, you're poor and incapable, On the other side, you have to, if you love, search for the thing you love and quest for the thing you love and fight for it. And so there's something I love about this little little myth that speaks volumes to us about what is love. He is by nature neither immortal nor mortal. But now he springs to life when he gets his way. Now he dies all the, in the very same day. I love that. He, he's neither mortal nor immortal. He's, he's not immortal because he dies whenever love is wounded. He is immortal. He is not, he is not mortal. Because he comes back to life whenever there is a chance to love again. He comes back to life whenever there's a chance. Because he is his father's son, however, he keeps coming back to life, yes. Love is never completely without resources, nor is it ever rich. It's never completely without, because I always have a little bit more strength to go and get it. But I'm never full, <laughs> never completely having it. Never, never satisfied if I love. Never, never completely rich. He is in between wisdom and ignorance as well. In fact, you see, none of the gods 
loves wisdom or wants to become wise, for they are wise. And no one else who is wise already loves wisdom. On the other hand, no one who is ignorant will love wisdom either or want to become wise. For what's especially difficult about being ignorant is that you are content with yourself. Even though you're neither beautiful or good or intelligent. If you don't think you need anything, of course you you won't want what you don't think you need. So, it's neither completely wise, you're not completely wise, because if you're completely wise, you're not going to look for it. You're not looking for it. Nor are you ignorant, because if you're ignorant, you don't even want it. I don't want what I don't know. The ignorant person doesn't realize that he is, how does he say? He is not beautiful, not good, and not intelligent. Because he's ignorant. So he doesn't know. So he doesn't look. And so love is going to be this thing that's, some, that's both, really. It's both wise and ignorant. And that's why this whole thing of it being presented by a priestess, a priestess, diotima, this priestess, that is going to be this already mediator between man and God, is already so important from the very beginning. It's coming forth from a mediator. This passage, this thing that carries me to the divine. In that case, diotima, who are the people who love, who love wisdom if they are neither wise nor ignorant? That's obvious, she said. A child could tell you. Those who love wisdom fall in between the two extremes. And love is one of them. Because he is in love with what is beautiful, and wisdom is extremely beautiful. It follows that love must be a lover of wisdom, and as such, is in between being wise and being ignorant. This, too, comes to him from his parentage, from a father who is wise and resourceful, and a mother who is not wise and lacks resource. My dear Socrates, that, then, is the nature of the spirit called love. Considering what you thought about love, it's no surprise that you were led into thinking of love as you did. On the basis of what you say, I conclude that you thought love was being loved rather than being a lover. I think that's why love struck I think that's why love struck you as beautiful in every way. Because It is what is really beautiful and graceful that deserves to be loved. And this is perfect and highly blessed. But being a lover takes a different form, which I have just described. So you thought love was incredibly beautiful. You thought that it was absolutely wonderful. But that's because you're getting confused what you love and love. It's a nice distinction. Love itself leads us to the beautiful. It leads us to the good. But love itself can be poor and miserable and ugly and terrible. It's not always good. If we're going to speak in Christian terms, uh, even an immaculate love is poor. It's maybe not ugly. The ugliness comes from sin, if we're going to speak about that. But it, even uh, immaculate love, when you're thinking about the Blessed Virgin Mary, it, she longs, she desires, and she's a poor beggar of the love of the Father, of the goodness of the Father. There's problems with this, because in heaven, she's not a beggar anymore. She has. 
So it's not always a beggar. In heaven, you're not a beggar because you have it. But not on this earth, we are beggars. And that's why we speak about the I thirst and all that. And note too, it's this desire for God. He's going to go a lot further in this. this is, then he develops it more and more and more. And it's worth reading through it as we're spending time on it. But um, to cut to the quick, he's going to lead us next through the fact that love, if I'm truly a lover, leads us through stages. And we're not satisfied. We're not satisfied with things. Plato has a terminology. Uh, we call it the ascending dialectic. Um, it's not necessarily important that you understand that, those words. But what you, get is, what you need to get is that in Platonic thought, there's often these like steps or stages that we walk through. And we look for beauty, for example, in the material world. And I'm in love with everything I see that is beautiful. And eventually, I am not satisfied because none of these material things have beauty in themselves. I look at the, the beautiful mountains, and then a stormy day comes, and it all becomes dark, and the light goes away. It's no longer beautiful. Or, I don't know, a fire hits it, and it's gone. It's no longer beautiful. I look at uh, the clouds that descend, and I can't see that beauty anymore. Or I look at a beautiful uh, woman or a beautiful man, and they grow old. Uh, I find it also expressed in a, man, uh, in a Christian philosopher named Kierkegaard, who is going to say, uh, Don Juan looks for beauty in all the women in the world. And eventually, he finds that none of them are satisfying him. He was satisfied with the first five, the first ten, and eventually he finds that his heart longs for something more. And he's in love with the ideal woman, but he's not finding any anywhere. And so he goes through a crisis. And that was the important point in Platonic thought. That's why we talk about the ascending steps. He goes through a crisis, and he's saying, nothing in the material world will satisfy me. And he makes a jump to something a little bit deeper. And what is another step that we would take? Well, you would take a step to the world of ideas, For example, if we're taking a bunch of steps, we can jump to um, the world of virtue, living a beautiful and noble life. But even there, our virtues are hollow when you see the virtuous man dying miserably, dying sad in war, or abandoned by all of his friends and forgotten in a retirement home. <laughs> you know, left alone. The virtuous man left alone because the world is cruel. The world is cruel. And you find that even that becomes hollow. Even if you had a good life, though, there's something in those acts that still longs for more. There's a lack that's in those actions, in the virtuous man. And he starts to look for something that we would call the contemplative life, for the gazing upon the beautiful. Like uh, that example of Don Juan, who no longer is looking at the material women, but he's longing for the perfect woman. 
he made a jump to the abstract, let's say. A jump to the ideal. For Plato, he's going to say that even the ideal woman isn't going to make it. We're going to have to go for the ideal period. Beauty itself. Beauty itself. Goodness itself. Goodness itself. Or if you're looking at virtue, the ideal virtuous man, the ideal virtuous human person, still seems vain. What is it virtuous for? Why? And it leads us to this quest for something greater because we hit a wall and we're forced to look for something that's more. He'll speak about, Plato will think that the, another step that's higher than the virtuous would be almost mathematics because mathematics is directly contemplating the beauty of the world and all of creation and finding the imprint of God, let's say. The imprint of the logos is the terms that they would use. The logos, the word written in all things. And so that will lead us to yet a higher state. And eventually, it leads you to the direct contemplation, almost like a a face-to-face contemplation of pure beauty and pure goodness. And someone who truly loves is never going to be satisfied. And he's going to jump from step to step to step to step, leading himself to that one thing that can satisfy him, the ideal beauty, the ideal goodness. That's why a lot of the fathers of the church were thinking that um, Socrates, and well, Plato, let's say, would probably, well, probably had grace working in his heart to say these things. He didn't have divine revelation, and he was not a Christian or a Jew. Uh, But the Holy Spirit had to have been working in his heart to say these things. And it is also just the search for the truth that led him to that too. (laughs) He is led naturally to that. We can't say that for sure that it's the Holy Spirit, but a lot of the fathers of the church put him there. Michelangelo will do his famous painting of the Agora, of the Agora, and he'll have Socrates and Plato discussing in the midst of it all, and it's almost as if he's putting them in heaven. He's putting them in the great marketplace of heaven, still discussing about, uh, about the wonders and beauties of God. But it's a beautiful thought, and it's important, because it's going to really be something of great import for Christian thought over the first thousand years. Let's take a break. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.